At the back of your bulletin, we'll read together as a congregation, Psalm 21, verses 1 through 13. Psalm 21. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exalts. You have given him his heart's desire, and have not withheld the request of his lips. Selah. For you meet him with rich blessings, you set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asks life of you, you gave it to him. Lengthened days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth, and their offspring from among the children of men. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. For you will put them to flight, you will aim at their faces with your bows. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning again. A number of years ago now, we had some friends who had... uh, I think it was their first child they had, and they decided that one of the things they were going to do in raising their children was they would give them no toys. And the rationale for this was if they had no toys, they wouldn't fight, there would be no selfishness. And so they had Bibles. You can guess then the end of that story. The, the lack of toys did not inhibit the progress of sin. And that's a little bit of a silly example, but we can tend to do some of the same kind of thinking in that the right kind of hedges will protect us, they'll defeat the flesh. But our passage in Colossians is just about that, that very subject. So the point here today is not that the hedges are wrong, the point is that the hedges, as a, as a replacement for Christ, they, they, if followed exclusively, will cut you off from the very one who can provide the victory over the flesh. I want to remind you, uh, before, I, before I go back and read one more time our, our passage for this week, and I'll try to finish it this week, no promises though, that this context in Colossians, uh, it, it, we, we began in chapter 1 in which Paul is praying for the church, the, the new church that has received life through the hearing of the gospel. They've grasped a hold of it, and they're growing in faith and love and hope. And Paul's prayer is that they would grow even more, and that they would grow in the knowledge of the will of God, and in that knowledge that they would mature, increase in growth of fruit, and particularly in an increase of spiritual wisdom and understanding. If you remember all the way back then, we went back and took a look at that phrase, spiritual wisdom and understanding, out of Exodus 35 and 1 Kings chapter 7, and we found that in both of those cases, it referred to those that were gifted to build the house of God. So spirit-given wisdom and understanding was given, to, uh, was given to Bezil, and it was also given to Hiram for the purpose of constructing the tabernacle and then the temple. And it's almost the same, same phrase, and we find that same phrase again used of our Savior as he's got a new building project, building 
the temple out of us. And so Paul's prayer for the church is that they would have that kind of spirit-given wisdom and understanding. And our warning passage falls within the context of that, that building project. And it's important, I think, to keep that in mind, that what Paul is encouraging the church in Colossae to, what he's encouraging us to, is our task, well, our, our vocation is in building up this house of God. Now, the house of God is no longer contained. It's spread across the whole earth so that the growth of fruit and increase is now spread across in God's people over the entirety of the earth. But the project still is building up the house of God in people, encouraging one another, lifting up the faint-hearted, going out into the world and, and laboring in our jobs, in every vocation that God has given us for this in purpose, that God's house, God's people would be built up and so that God would dwell in our midst as we grow and mature towards this goal of the glory of God residing in the midst of his people. And so, this means as we take heart to the warning in this passage and we apply it to our, our own situation, the danger is that if we don't heed this kind of warning, the warning of Colossians chapter 2, then when we do start building, we'll build like, like the builders of 1 Corinthians 3. We'll build with hay and stubble, and it, it won't last. It will burn up. And in fact, we can even be guilty of destroying the very house of God itself. So listen one more time then to Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 23. As you therefore have received Jesus... Christ and Yahweh walk in him, having been firmly rooted and being built in him, established in your faith as you were instructed, and overflowing with gratitude. See to it that no one takes you captive, that no one plunders you through a love of wisdom, through an empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ." For in him the fullness of God dwells in bodily form. In him you have also been made full, and he is the head over all rule and authority, and in him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the stripping away of the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the work of God who raised that Jesus from the dead." And you were dead in your transgression and the uncircumcision of your flesh, but he has made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our transgressions, having blotted out the handwriting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, he nailed it to the cross. And when he had stripped the rulers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, having triumphed over them through him, that is Jesus. Therefore, because Jesus has raised you up, because we sit with Jesus, because the God dwells in us through Jesus. Therefore, don't let those rulers and authorities or anybody that represents them judge you in food or drink or with respect to festival or new moon or Sabbath, things which are a shadow of what is to come, but the fullness, the body, the substance is Christ." Let no one keep defrauding you. Let no one rule over you by a willful humility of mind and a worship of angels, an angelic worship, taking his stand, entering into things he has seen, or in some of your translations, things he hasn't seen. We'll have to talk about that. Inflated, puffed up, without cause, in vain, by the mind, his mind of flesh, and not holding fast, not seizing on to the head from whom the whole body, being supplied and held together by joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. If you, according to these verses, have died with Christ from the arrangement of the old world, why, as if you were living in that world, do you submit yourself to those decrees? Do not taste, do not, sorry, do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, all of which refer to things destined to perish in consumption in accordance with the commandments and the teachings of men. These are matters which have to be sure, a word of wisdom in a willful worship and humility of mind and neglect of the body, but they have no value in filling up the flesh." If you would pray with me. 
Father, we come before the word that you have spoken in our Savior Jesus. And Lord, we ask that you would indeed fill your word with power and simultaneously give us ears to hear. Bore them out so that we will hear the truth of your word. And that in hearing, we'll be filled with a knowledge of you and grow in spiritual wisdom and understanding, prepared to once again labor at the task that you've given us in building up your people and looking forward to the fullness of your promise of glory and honor residing in and on us because of our Savior Jesus. Give us ears to hear today, Lord. We pray these things in the name of Jesus who speaks. Amen. So you remember from last week, uh, I had one complaint that I gave an outline and then left a lot of holes because I only covered two verses. So we'll go over a bit of that outline again. Verses 16 through 23 comes in three sections, if you recall. Verses 16 and 17, verses 18 through 19, and verses 20 through 23. And in each one of them, he, he gives... Uh, a very similar sounding command. So verses 16 and 17, let no one act as your judge in food, drink, new moons, festivals, or Sabbath days. And so there, there's a specificity then in this section which we looked at last week. If you're looking back to the law and then coming forward to the new temple being built in Christ, the two are incompatible, particularly in this set of commands. In that if you follow the law of food and drink in the Old Testament, you cannot, you cannot follow the command of Christ at the same time in meeting with God's people because they're mutually exclusive. We come to eat a sin offering that they couldn't eat. We come to drink a cup that they could not drink. You can't keep both. We come as priests into the Holy of Holies where they were excluded. And so you cannot do both simultaneously. Instead, God is making the old into the new. And he gives a reason why those, why those things are set aside. They were a shadow. The new moon, the festival, the Sabbath day was a shadow. Those were representative of the old rulers, the ruler of the night. They were clocked according to the moon so that every festival started in the evening and it was set according to the cycle of the moon. But now Jesus, the sun, has come. And so our days where we come to meet with him, where he calls us into worship, are set according to Jesus, who has reigned and is sitting, exalted at the right hand of the Father. He is the one that rules over time and space. He is the one that gives us food and drink that matter. And he calls us into his presence. So the first reason not to let them judge you is because the shadow is gone and the reality, the body of Christ, has arrived. And so do not live according to those rules or under those rulers. Verses 18 through 20, he, he gives us a second set of commands that are related, and we're going to dig into these a little, uh, a little more deeply today. But notice there in verse 18, let no one, my translation says, keep defrauding you of your prize. That's all one word, uh, other than no one. So let, let no one, and the, word, the phrase translated defrauding you of your prize or stealing your reward, it, it's the word for rule, but it has... Uh, the sense of an, ar an arbiter in which you're choosing between two sides. So let no one rule over you. And that word is picked up again in chapter 3, uh, verse 15. We do have a ruler, and the one who takes the place of the old rulers, the old arbiters who decided Jew, Gentile, the Jews could enter, the Gentiles could not, the priests could enter, the common could not, the high priest could enter, the rest could not. That arbiter has been stripped of power, and instead there is a new arbiter, a new, a new ruler, and in verse 15, Paul tells us, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, arbitrate between you. And so we have a new ruler in Christ, and peace is lifted up then as the, the, the rule that stands among and between us. Back in verse 18, then we have this command, let no one rule over you by delighting and what's going on here? Ethan told me he likes English lessons that I give during the sermon, so more English lessons. There's four participial phrases, those are the I-N-G kind of words, if you've forgotten, got, got forgotten your English. By delighting, you, you can't see them all here, but there's four phrases. The, the rulers that he says don't be ruled by, they have four characteristics about them. Delighting, 
entering or taking, his, taking a stand, that's the second participial phrase, inflated, that's the third participial phrase, or puffed up, being puffed up, and then the fourth is not holding fast to the head. So there's four descriptions of these rulers which we are not to allow to rule over us, and we'll, we'll discuss each one of those, but if you're keeping an outline of blanks, there's your four parts. And then he gives a reason. The reason is because those who rule according to the principles in verse 18, more specifics to come, they cut us off from the only one who gives growth. Remember, he prayed in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 10, that we would grow. He used the word increase as the translation in chapter 1, verse 10, but it's the same root word that we would increase, grow in the knowledge of God. That growth that we're seeking for only comes from the head. And so the, the, the problem with these rules and their rulers is that if we follow them, we get cut off from the one who gives that growth. And so we have the reasons are, first, the shadow is gone and Jesus the Christ has come, and with him he's bought the, broad, the body of Christ, the true temple, and filled it up with the glory of God, so don't look backwards. Secondly, those rules and those rulers will cut us off from that head that gives true growth. And then thirdly, in verses 20 through 23, we see each of these reasons repeated with one final one. So, verse 20, if you've died with Christ from the arrangement of the old world, why do you still live under decrees of that world, under that kind of arrangement, listening to the commands, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? And you should hear references back to what he said in verses 16 and 18. Let no one act as your judge with regard to food or drink, new moon, festival, Sabbath day. Those are the kind of rules, but now they're generalized into rules that are, are really nice and short. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. All of those things, they perish in consumption. So that's the first reason. Because the rules and their objects, they die in the using up of them. We'll, we'll spend some time talking about that. And then he expands it out for us even more. Since we are probably not tempted to look back to Judaism, we, we still have an application for today. Because he says those kinds of laws and those rulers, there is a comparison. When Jesus came, those laws are just like human traditions. They're, they're equated. Because God has done away with them, if we still follow them, they're, they're in accordance with traditions and commandments made by men, no longer given by God. And they have an appearance of wisdom, but they don't have the wisdom. And then the final reason, the capstone here in verse 23, is that they are of no value in filling the flesh. So this third reason says... Not only has the shadow gone and the reality come, the sustenance come, not only do these rulers and their rules cut you off from Christ, but in following them, they don't accomplish what they say they will accomplish. They're no value against the filling of the flesh or in the true filling of the flesh. So they neither bring God to live amongst us, they don't accomplish that, nor do they accomplish the goal of cutting off the wicked desires of the flesh? No matter how many hedges you give, the flesh will come through. It's like playing a game of bop it. You knock one down, you put a hedge around it, and you, you bop that alligator, it disappears, and another one will show up. The kid's fighting with the Bible. Well, sin will come through unless the root is taken care of. And, and if we're looking forward in Colossians chapter 3... That's the answer that he's going to give us, is how do you dispose of this root? What is the real way to deal with the flesh? And that's what chapter 3 is all about. Okay, so enough of an outline. We've got progress to make, hopefully. All right, so back to verse 18. Paul, in his command here, he says, let, let not the one rule over you, who remember that is described by these four participial phrases. And so we want to look into those phrases. The first one is, uh, my NSB translation translates this, it this way, the, the, the rulers who rule, that he says don't be ruled by, are delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels. So that's the first phrase. 
And if you go read all the commentaries, it'll make your head spin with the number of ways to translate this specific phrase. If you look in your Bibles, they probably won't follow what I just read to you. Um, but we're going to start with the, the verb there, delighting. It's the Greek word thelo. And it's the, the word that in the rest of Colossians is translated will. And so back in chapter 1, verse 9, for this reason, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. It's that word. And so these rulers have their own will, but it's set in distinction from the will of God. There's two different wills. God has one will, and that will he is uncovering now in Christ. Remember, there's a mystery to the end purpose of God's will, and that mystery is being uncovered. It's the very thing that Paul wants them to understand. And that mystery, that will, we've been hammering it in, comes in verses 26 and 27 of Colossians chapter 1. The mystery that's been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested or shown to his saints to whom God willed, same word there, to make known the riches of the glory of the mystery among you, among the Gentiles, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So this is God's will, that you would know, Gentile and Jew, that God's will is that Christ dwell in you and that you would look forward to the glory of Psalm 8. Because God dwells in our midst, we'll be lifted up with Jesus. And he says, in Christ, that has been made true already. So that's God's will. In distinction to that, there are rulers from the old age who are that they have their own will. And it can be translated delight, but it's, it's willful, it's voluntary. You're, you're placing yourself, and then the second word, the, the description, by delighting, by willing, uh, my translation says self-abasement, but the word is humility. It's a compound word that means humility of mind, and it's not a bad word, it's not a bad thing. In fact, in chapter 3, Paul is going to tell us that we're called to humility. And so your, your translation may translate this false humility. Some, some, of them, some of them say that, but the word false is not there. It's just a voluntary, willful humility. And the word humility it just means you're putting yourself under. And so there is, this, there is this idea of a false humility in which you've elevated a humility of mind that does not submit to what Jesus has declared clean or, or unclean, but instead, he's going to say that this kind of humility, this kind of lowering yourself, in fact, is not humility at all. It's arrogance. It makes you puffed up. Anyone who rules according to this kind of willful humility is not to be listened to. So what, is, what does that mean? I had Hyde read for us Acts chapter 10. And remember, Peter... He's got a vision, he's, he's, he's been lifted up, and he sees all the animals on the, the sheet. And God says, take and eat. And, and Peter says, I would never. I would never do that, because they're unclean. And, and God, God tells him, what well, God has cleansed, don't consider unclean. And this happens three times. So when God is telling, when God is telling you something, to, to respond back and say, well, no, not me, I would, I would never do that. That's that kind of, it has the appearance of humility, but it's not humility. You can see it in, in Isaiah chapter 7, Ahaz asked for, uh, God tells Ahaz to ask for a sign, and Ahaz says, I, I won't, I would never do that. I won't ask, I won't test God. That sounds right, right? God says, don't, don't put the Lord your God to the test. It sounds right, but God just told him, ask me for a sign, and Ahaz said, no. And God's response, is it too slight a thing that you try the patience of men, that you'll also try the patience of God? You see, we can be tempted by this, this kind of concept too, in that there is a false subjection, a false humility, which seems good. And for conservative Christians, this can be a real temptation in which you put on the long face, the dour face, and that's, that's what worship is, is this uh, lowering of yourself, in order to enter God's kingdom. So we have to distinguish what's, what's false and what's real. Well, the humbling in this case has some specific aspects to it. He says that there's, a, there's two nouns here. By voluntary or delighting in a humble kind of understanding and, and the worship of angels or angelic worship. So we have a, a second piece to this puzzle. 
Don't be ruled by those who voluntarily place themselves under with a humble, humble mind and enter or worship through angels. So what's going on here? In the Old Testament, the, the word for humble here, um, it shows up in one of the feasts. So on the Day of Atonement, the Israelites are called to humble themselves. And that humility is a, it takes the form of fasting. So we see in Psalm 35 that those two ideas are connected together. You afflict yourself, you humble yourselves before the Lord. And the, the goal is you're looking to enter into God's presence. Remember that Day of Atonement was the one day of the year that the high priest penetrated into the Holy of Holies. He went before the footstool of God's throne and he brought the blood of the atonement. And so there is this humbling that occurs for the entire nation as you prepare for that event. There's the same kind of humbling that occurred as the people met God at Mount Sinai. So there was an abstinence for three days of any marital relations, and there's an abstinence then of eating food and drink, both of which, if you follow the Old Testament law, can make you unclean, so that you, you could not come in, you could not draw near. And so there is this, this idea of humility in approaching God's throne room. Now, if you go into God's throne room, if you were to go back and look at the tabernacle, at the temple, particularly the temple, what, what you'll find is that it's just filled with angels. The walls are covered in angels. The doors are, are carved with angels. Inside you'll go and you'll see angels. And remember, he's talking about a Judaizing influence. So the, the idea is we're going to go enter the temple. We're getting ready. We're voluntarily now humbling ourselves to come in to God's presence, to look at those angels. And he uses a phrase then that could be translated worshiping the angels, or it could just be translated entering into angelic worship. And I think that ambiguity is there on purpose. And that what Paul's telling us is maybe those rulers and maybe the ones following them are not encouraging actually the worship of angels, Although we see that, we see even in Revelation that John falls down before an angel. He says, don't, don't do that, get back up. But he's equating the two. Because God has lifted man up in Christ, remember he's lifted him up, he was for a little while lower than the angels. You entered into those houses through angelic guards, through the law, which was mediated by angels in Acts chapter 7, verse 53, and Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. You draw near through the law, mediated by angels, into a house guarded by angels, and that's how you enter into worship of God. Paul is saying, not anymore, because in Christ, he's been raised up now. He's exalted, and he sits at the right hand of God over those angels. And the law that the angels mediated was tacked on the cross. The, the handwriting of decrees against us was nailed to the cross and blotted out. It was put to death with Christ and now resurrected in Christ so that the new king, a man, sits at the right hand of God and he has, he has the law, but now the law is not a tool of subjection and death mediated by angels. Instead, for his people, it is a tool of dominion and life. And Paul uses those words in the book of Romans. But it, it, it's, you're no longer under a law of, of sin and death, but the law is spirit and life. So I think that's what's going on here in verse 18. Let them not rule over you who voluntarily, who willfully, and he wants us to think about that word in distinction to God's will. God has made his will known that the Gentiles are co-heirs. They're, in, they're welcomed in. In the Gentiles, Christ will dwell. Jew and Gentile will be obliterated. That's God's will. And to go back and to say, all right, we're going to enter in, we'll humble ourselves under the angels, through the law, enter into God's house, Paul is saying God doesn't dwell there anymore. You're entering into a house, and now if you follow that law, that rule, it's, it's nothing but idolatry in the end because God left that house. He dwells in a house not made of human hands and a circumcision not accomplished by human hands, but instead in the house built by Christ. I don't know if we, 
in, in our circles think about this a whole lot. I was talking to a, a guy here in McKinney, and he was in a church that he thought was doing well. And the next time I saw him was a couple months later. And he told me that this church had asked him on a men's retreat out into the wilderness. And they went through this series of rituals in which they're led through the wilderness with nothing. And they're brought then to a table that's covered in angels. And they have to break chains and say, say some words in Greek. Is this kind of idea. There's still this type of influence that exists in our world. It's not one that we're familiar with so much, but if you, if you try to apply this, think about the kind of humility, the kind of subjection, and now apply it to a modern context so we're no longer talking about Judaizers. How does this influence us? Well, this is the type of worship that enters through an intermediary instead of through Christ. Remember, Jesus is our mediator. And so when we come to Christ and we draw near through icons or when we draw near through saints, all of those are in violation of what God has told us because Jesus sits at the right hand of God and he's raised up us together with him. So a kind of willful subjection to go through another path to say that maybe Christ doesn't care about me enough, I need, I need something a little lower, is really a desire to control God. It's in, it's in contrast to His will. We are welcomed into the Holy of Holies through Christ and Christ alone. So those are easy. right? It's easy to point at somebody else and say, well, that's their problem. We don't struggle with that here. And we can do the same thing with other groups and the idea of speaking uh, glossolalia, glossalia, and say there's this elevation of an idea where you speak in tongues, and that's how you enter into worship. And, and that's true, but does this have application to us? Do we have a false humility in which we, and we're going we're gonna to look at verse 20 and 21, and we'll get down to some specifics. Then. Okay, so moving forward, we got the first participle out of the way, so we're making really good progress. Right, we'll come back to the idea of angels in a minute. So the second phrase here in verse 18, so these kinds of rulers, they rule by their will of a humble understanding, you place yourself under the angels, you, you worship through the angels. And then the second phrase, uh, your Bible might say something like going into detail about visions, or it might say something on the order of entering in things you haven't seen, or things they haven't seen, or my translation taking your stand, his stand on things he has seen. Well, how can you get so many different interpretations from one phrase? I think that there, there is an ambiguity of whether you see or whether you don't see, and, and that's on purpose. Again, Paul could clarify, but he doesn't. But the, the main verb here, it can mean something like going into detail. So you, you have visions of angels and you go into detail like Daniel, like some of the prophets, and you're looking to obtain those visions. Which, by the way, if you go back and read in Daniel, Daniel fasted and then he gave the vision. Um, but then he was given the vision. But I, I think the verb here probably has a, uh, more of a sense of entering in. And so you can think of going into the temple, entering into worship, and e either on what you see or on things you haven't seen. And, and to some degree it doesn't matter. The picture still is of going into the temple, of entering into, into worship, and then the third participial phrase there is inflated uh, or puffed up. And the, the, the root there of being puffed up, it's a, it's a root that means grow. And so, but that growing in, in our modern sense would be more like growing, filled, filling a bladder with hot air. And so you, your head gets puffed up, it's arrogance. And this is a, a word, fusio, that Paul only uses in 1 Corinthians. Um, so he uses that word on repeat in that, in that epistle. And he accuses then the church of arrogance. And he accuses the church of arrogance on two sides. 
On the one side, they don't cut off the people that should be cut off, the man that has a father's wife. On the other side, they're making divisions among themselves on things that they have no business making divisions on because it's not derived from God's Word. Instead, there's these divisions that have crept in. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. And so the, the lines of baptism become dividing lines, fighting lines. And he says, in both cases, you're, you're arrogant, you're puffed up. And Paul uses that word here to speak of these rulers. They're inflated in their mind. And so they have this idea that true worship, true worship is humbling yourself under the angels, entering into God's presence. You fast and you pray according to the old covenant laws, and God will bring you in. The whole goal is still coming into God's presence, being filled up with God. But he says the only thing they're filled up with is hot air. They're puffed up. And that, that puffed up, he modifies it with the phrase without cause or in vain. It doesn't do anything. So they're not actually filled. They're just filled with hot air by their mind of the flesh. So that it, it all now exists in the mind. And then verse 19, we have the fourth and probably most important participial phrase. So these rulers, what they're doing in all of these three steps by delighting, willing, a, a, a false kind of humility, a false kind of worship, entering on things they've seen, they're puffed up in their mind, and on top of all of that, they're not seizing onto the head. Lost my spot. Okay, so they're not, <clears throat> they're not holding fast to, to the head who is Jesus. And that, that holding fast, the, the noun form of that verb is krateo, and it means might. We, we saw it back in chapter 1. We're strengthened with the glorious might of God, but now he takes it, and it's a verb form. What they're not doing is holding fast with all of their power to the head. And because of that, all of the machinations, all of the rules that that they provide are empty. You get nowhere with them. Instead, verse 19, and this is central to this text, this is the positive application. We have to hold on to, seize with all of our might, the head. And the reason why is from the head, the whole body is supplied and held together by joints and ligaments, and it grows with a growth which is from God. So he uses, uh, he uses two verbs and two nouns here. The first of those, the first of those uh, we'll, we'll take the, the verbs first. The word that is first is supplied. He gives, he provides. And it's the word, the root word from which we get the word chorus. And uh, in, in it, there's this idea of music and, and dancing, but it's a, God is supplying abundantly such that there is a feast. There's feasting before him. And so from the head comes this supply which is limitless. And then there's a second verb, which is we're held together. So not only does God supply everything that we need for growth, he also holds us together. And he does it by two nouns, joints and ligaments. Joints, uh, the first of these is is a word that we see again in chapter 3, verse 14. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond. It's a bond that holds together, a bond of unity. And so picture we have this body holding fast to the head, and it's held together. In our bodies, we have joints that hold all our mobile pieces together so they don't, so they don't come apart. And in the body of Christ, we are bonded to one another to the head. And the bond, the joints, then take the form of our love for one another. The end of all this story is, if, if we divide the body of Christ according to these kind of rules, looking backwards or making up our own new ones, then we're, we're chopping up the body of Christ. It will not grow. It will not hold together. The second word, ligaments, is the, the word is, uh, maybe it's the first. Don't worry about which is which. Is the word uh, hafe, and I looked this up in the Septuagint, and it's translated uh, uh, by the word plague. It comes from the root meaning to touch, and the picture from Leviticus 13 is it spreads. There's this spreading force, 
And so when you, when you put the two together, what you see is that in the body of Christ, two things are necessary. Both the, the nouns and the verbs describe this, that there is a holding together and simultaneously there is a supply, a provision, a growth that expands outward. So if you think about how God is building the temple through Christ, it's being built up, it's being built out so that it fills up the whole world, but simultaneously it's being held together. Remember, Jesus is the one who holds all things together. So our bodies, too, if they were just held together, would be an immobile block. There'd be no growth. But God designed them in such a way that they they grow and they don't explode. They're held together. And that's the picture. When we hold fast to the head, both of those things are true. There's, there's growth, there's expansion, there's supply of everything that we need for life and godliness, but simultaneously, Jesus holds us together. Here in the first centuries, the forces of Jew and Gentile, the old world that want to rip them apart, Jesus stands in the middle and he holds on to both so that they cannot be ripped apart. He bonds them together. And the same thing is true for us, who would have no business being in the same room if you just took our backgrounds, our likes, our dislikes. Jesus, then, is the bonding force which holds us together even as we grow and expand in our understanding and our body count and all of it. He is the one that is then building this temple. All right. Moving on. Verses 20 through 23, our third section, if you have died with Christ, or since you have died with Christ, he's already told us that we've been circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, we've been buried with him in baptism and raised up with him through faith. Implicit in there is that we died with Christ, but he saved that word that we died together with him until now. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, Uh, Hopefully you all remember then a little bit about that phrase, the elementary principles of the world. What what is it? I think that the translation arrangement might make a little bit better sense to us. The Greek word is stoicheia. Paul uses it five times in the New Testament. And the idea is of a form or an arrangement, how God put the universe together. And there was an old world... And so the, the, the Greeks had a whole philosophy in which there was an arrangement of the world with, with fire, water, uh, earth, and air, and you could move between the four of them, and those were the elements of the world. But Paul picks up this terminology, and he's using it to look back on that world, which was ruled by angels. There's angels over the nations. You can read about them in the book of Daniel. So the archangel Michael resides, presides as a prince over the nation of Israel. There's princes over the other nations, and they're warring, and they're fighting. And there's an arrangement of those worlds in which God has brought forward Israel as his priestly nation. Paul is saying that that arrangement, you died to that arrangement of the world. It is no longer. If you died with Christ to that old arrangement of the world one in which Jew and Gentile were separate, one in which angels presided over the law, one which was defined by these kinds of rules. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. So you were kept out. Don't enter in. These words are used in Exodus 19 as they approach Mount Sinai. Don't touch, don't get close, don't handle. You come into God's house, don't taste it, don't eat it. There's only so far you can be brought and thus no further. That's the arrangement of the old world. But now in Christ, you have died to that world, and he's brought us all the way into the Holy of Holies. So we're not judged according, verse 16, in regard to that food or that drink. Instead, he brings us in and he welcomes us to sit down to to drink that which they weren't allowed to drink, to eat that which they weren't allowed to eat. And so we have these decrees, and he's asking us, why do you put yourself back under as a slave? Same idea as the humility of verse 18, that false humility. Why do you subject yourself, putting yourself back under the rule of angels when you died to that world? That was the law that condemned you. But Jesus has brought us through death into a resurrected life where in him we now see the new age fully, fully detailed because Jesus, a man, is exalted and sits at the right hand of God, and he's bringing us with him. The head goes first, and then comes the body. 
And so he gives us this list of decrees. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, or your translation may, may translate them the opposite. Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, because the first and the third both mean don't touch. There's a difference in, in degree. So the first one is, is the same root as the, the word for, uh, for joints in which Jesus touches us. So he's holding us together. The, the root hafe, now the, in the, the verb hapto, do not touch, do not handle. But in fact, we've been brought in and we are touched by Jesus. We're touching not just the fringes of his garment, but he's holding us together. These verbs should sound suspiciously similar to God's command to Adam and Eve in the garden. Don't eat. Don't approach. Don't eat this from this tree. And Eve then expands on it. Don't even touch the tree. Well, we see in the law that that, that kind of expansion is encoded. Don't, don't eat. Don't touch from, from unclean animals. Don't come in. You may not eat from the sin offering. You may not drink of the cup of the vine, of the, the wine in the presence of God. Don't eat, don't touch, don't taste. But now they're generalized for us. Verse 22, what do we make of this? These kinds of commands, which are representative commands of the old age, they're exclusionary commands. Don't come in. Don't partake of the tree of life. Don't enter into God's presence. Don't touch. They all refer to things destined to perish in consumption. Well, what, is, what does that mean? There's, a, I think, a, a couple different ways we can think about this. The laws themselves, so if you, you think about the commands, don't touch, don't taste. The minute you break those laws, you can't unbreak them. If you've tasted it, you can't untaste it. If you've touched it, you can't untouch it. It's done. The laws themselves perish in the using because now you, you've broken it. You, you've broken that law. And we see that in, in Adam. Adam and Eve, they, they touched, they tasted, they ate. We see that with the nation of Israel. They ate that which they weren't supposed to eat. But it also means something uh, a little bit more. And that when you eat, when you eat food... It, it's gone. It perishes in the consumption. So you eat food, and you eat your banana in the morning, and you can't go back and say, well, that banana is going to give me life. Because it's gone. It's used up. It's now turned into excrement, as, as Jesus points out in Mark chapter 7. And so Paul's logic is, is this. You've died according to that arrangement, arrangement of the world which was more like a, a child relates to a guardian. You've now been raised up. You're married to Christ. In fact, you can think about that whole picture as the transition that occurs in a, when a child marries. From one day, they're under the rule of their father, and there's a very specific set of rules that they're called to, to follow. There's hedges there about, uh, about touching, tasting, eating. And the next day, they're married to their husband, and those rules do not apply anymore. In fact, if you go back and you apply them, you, you, your marriage will be a failure because you'll be separated from, from your husband. And so we're moving from one arrangement to the other, and that old arrangement refers to things that perish in the consumption. And so his, his logic goes, goes this way. If the very things you're, you're being excluded from, they're temporary things. And Paul says food and drink is, is temporary in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. It, it perishes. They perish in the consumption. Then how much more so can excluding you from those things not give you life? If the things themselves can't give you life, the food, the drink that perishes in the consumption, can the laws that exclude you from the food and drink give you life? Can they fill you? Can they satisfy you? And so the picture is you eat food and drink and you're satisfied for a second and then you're not satisfied anymore because the body needs to grow. It needs more supply. And, uh, and so when we look to either the food and drink itself of the old age or the commands that say don't touch, don't taste, don't eat, neither one will produce the goal of the built, filled temple of God in which God dwells in our midst. 
It cannot. And then in verse 22, he, he, uh, he gives us a little leeway because he says that those commands, all of which are commands that God gave in the Old Testament, don't, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. They come from God. But now he says those commands, because they're past, because they were a shadow and the reality the body of Christ has come, they perish in the consumption. They're dead. The commands are dead. And they're just like, they're in accordance with the commandments and the teaching of men. So our commands, they, they, they also perish. At our house, we have a set of commands, right? Don't, don't touch the outlet. Now, does that command last? The answer is no. If there's no outlet, it's, it doesn't last. When they get older and they need to change the outlets, the command doesn't, it, it doesn't last. It perishes. And so... This isn't a referendum on the commandments and the teachings of men, but rather when those commandments and those teachings, whether they're taking a command that God has nailed to the cross and resurrecting that command, or making our own good and necessary judgments about how to apply the word of God, when they interfere with God's purpose of dwelling in his people's midst, of holding his people together, those kinds of commands amount to mere idolatry. They, they don't bring life, they just bring death. And so if we, if we interpret God's word in a way that cuts us apart, not based on sin, not based on what God has said, but based on our, our interpretations, our machinations, then we're defeating the very thing we're trying to save. If we set up a hedge around ourselves saying, do not do this, do not do this, it's not that the hedge is bad. But if we use that hedge and we, we, we walk it down the middle of God's people, there is life in clinging to the head who is Christ. That's where life is. That's where life flows from. That's where growth flows from. And now if we take his people and we divide them in half, we're saying, I don't want God's will. God's will is that all together we would be filled with him that he would dwell in our midst. Not me as an individual, but us together as the body of Christ. God supplies and he holds it together. And so, you see, we can use our interpretations, our commands, in a way that they defeat the entire purpose. If I put a hedge up and say, do not, and then I, I cut my brother off, and it's my hedge, then I, I may be trying to be sanctified, trying to protect myself, trying to protect my children. But in the end, I'm not doing any of that because I've cut my brother off from Christ, and therein I'm also cut off. Verse 23, we'll get to a summary here in just a second. These are matters which, to be sure, have a word of wisdom. Remember he says... See to it that no one takes you captive, that no one plunders you through a love of wisdom. So they, let's not be mistaken in that these kinds of things can sound, will sound wise to us. But Paul in Colossians is clear that wisdom flows from Christ. It comes from his will that he's unveiling in his word. And so therein lies wisdom. And wisdom sought outside of that, it may sound wise, it's got a, a reflection of God's wisdom, but it's not wise at all. It, and, and we'll see then the fullness of that in just a second. And then he lists three things, uh, two, of which he's already, two of which he's already stated for us. So the first is now a compound word of the word for will and the word for religion or worship. So my translation translates this self-made religion. It's, it's a willful worship, but the, the, the kind of worship that has an appearance of wisdom is a kind of worship that isn't given by the will of God. It's not, not sought through him. Instead, it's my idea of what worship should be. It starts to sound really familiar to our current modern-day context. We've got an idea about how to approach God. And it's my idea because I'm the center. And that, therein lies, lies the problem. We seize a hold of the, the head. The minute we stop doing that, we become the center of worship, and it really does become a form of self-worship. And secondly, again, we have the same word for humility, self-abasement, so we're placing ourselves under. And God calls us to be humble, but our humility is to be under the head, Jesus. Not to place ourselves randomly under other authorities that he's taken out of the way. That is not humility at all. And then finally, uh, we have this word 
That's translated either bodily neglect or severe treatment of the body. And it has the same connotation in which you fast, you put on a gloomy face, um, and that's, that's what God values, what God desires is abstaining from the right list of things. But Paul says there is no value in that against fleshly indulgence. It doesn't succeed. Now, I want you to think about that phrase in, uh, with two meanings to it. I think one we're used to in that if, if you neglect your body, you, you withhold. So don't taste, don't touch, don't handle. It's the essence of a fast. Not that fasting is wrong, and, and there's, a, there's a time and a reason to fast, but, but this isn't what God values. This doesn't, this doesn't give us victory over the flesh. Not in, that, not in that kind of neglect of the body, where I don't brush my hair, I come looking, looking haggard and, and weak. There's no value there. But there's a second way to read that, and I think Paul would encourage us in this, that throughout the book of Colossians, the body of Christ is both his fleshly body, so referencing our body, but it's also the corporate body. And what's ironic is that when, when we approach God through these kinds of rulers and these kinds of rules, what ends up happening is we neglect the body, the corporate body. We cut ourselves off and we cut others off. And so in, in the, the emphasis on the treatment of the body, on entering through rules of food and drink through new moons and Sabbaths rather than through Christ, we neglect the very body of Christ, which is the goal. That's the reality. And then, of course, finally, he says, these are of no value. And again, there's, there's two, two interpretations here, both of which are accurate. There's no value in them against fleshly indulgence or against the filling of the flesh, but there's also no value here in filling up the flesh. So these kinds of hedges, and we need to remember that as, as parents, as God's people, these hedges, not, not, not God-given commands to us, but the hedges that we put up, they're not what's going to gain us victory. They're not going to result in cutting off the flesh. And, and it's easy to see that when I give an example of, well, I'm going to, I'm going to give my kids no toys because then they won't be selfish. Well, the selfishness doesn't come from the toys. You give them two Bibles and they'll beat each other on the head with them. And the same is true of us. And, and, and this may sound foolish, but if you look back in our history not even that far, this is exactly what what mankind does. And so Dr. Kellogg, Dr. Graham, both of them, they made your Kellogg's flakes and your Graham flakes in order to stop sexual indulgence. If you just eat tasteless things, then you won't have that problem. But of course, it, it does nothing. It's of no value against fleshly indulgence. And furthermore, it's particularly of no value in the goal of God's will that God dwells in our midst. Now, that may seem dangerous to you. What's, what's a world with no rules? We're going to get to that in chapter 3. So for those of you who are excited, don't worry, Paul has a word for, for you too, and that there is, it, 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 it's, not, it's not that Paul's saying there's no value in the fight against the flesh. He's saying that the hedge won't let you win. You have to put it all the way to death. Instead of, uh, one author put it this way, instead of caging the tiger, you've got to kill the tiger. And so it's, it's more dramatic, not less dramatic. So how do we apply these passages? We need to be on our guard, particularly, particularly in the context of the body. Remember, this is in building up the body with skill and wisdom. Particularly in this context, we have to be on our guard then against forms of worship that exclude others based on our own our own traditions, our own commandments, because in so doing, we're cutting off the very source of life. We're cutting ourselves off from the head. We need to be careful then against a form of worship that substitutes humility for a true uh, putting to death of sin. So this kind of fake humility, a religion of the eyes and experiences where worship from the heart becomes more about the environment and the euphoria that it produces. We need to be careful, then, about any form of worship 
that places an importance on intermediaries that come between the body and Christ. We cling to the head in and through one another. And we need to be particularly wary then of anything that cuts people off from Christ the head. Our focus is on Christ, not on self. If you would stand with me, and let's pray. Father, we pray that as we hear your word, as we read it, as we're reminded of it this week, that it would be rooted in us. Lord, help us to cling to our Savior Jesus as the head. All life flows from him. Help us to think rightly about our brothers and sisters, to not divide and cut with our ideas, our imaginations but instead to cling to Christ together as the one that supplies liberally all things that we need, the one that holds us together as the house of God. And we pray, Lord, that you would fill us up today as we worship together in your presence, that we would look towards the bread of life, the one that truly fills and not something empty and perishing. We pray these things in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. Just a, a note, our Spanish brothers are coming in, and we're rather full, so if you could squish together uh, for their sake.